0: Hey, you have all night tossing, turning, mind racing, trouble falling asleep? Well, I'm glad you're here. Welcome. I think you're in the right place, because this is the Sleep With Me podcast, the podcast that puts you to sleep. Tonight we're presenting Game of Drones, where we talk about a Game of Drones episode, and I drone on and on about it. If this is your first time here, what are we going to do? We're going to talk about the episode. But first, what we're going to do is create a safe place where you can set aside any racing thoughts, any burning thoughts, any thinking thoughts, the stuff that keeps you awake at night, basically. You can put that aside. You just got to listen to my voice. Listen to me talk about the episode. All right? So just go ahead. Get ready for bed. You turn out the lights on this podcast. You press play. You listen. I'll distract you. I talking about stuff like, Man, what is, you know, how many how many teeth does the average human being have? Blah, blah, blah. That's what I do. All right. That's the podcast that's here to put you to sleep. I hope you like it. Hope it works for you. I'm glad you're here. We're on the web, www.sleepwithmepodcast.com. Game of Drones episodes are at www.sleepwithmepodcast.com slash drones. You can email me feedback at sleepwithmepodcast.com. You can get me on Twitter, Facebook. All right, you can send a postcard. Just go to com slash S-A-S-E if you want our mailing address. Uh, that's it. I'm glad you're here. And let's get on to the game of drones, all right? Thanks for coming. Uh, hey, guys, it's me uh, calling in from the uh, well, um, uh, 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 flight uh, gratitude 07. Or something. I was trying to think, you know, I use Gratitude Express. I think the Gratitude Express is really the right word for it. And I got another trainload of passengers here uh, to thank you for, sweet, sweet gods. And I know usually I just say sweet, sweet crone, but I'm feeling extra sweet on all of you for some reason. I want to thank you, gods, for Chris Posty Posterson, who does our music, for Sir Scott and his lovely lady, Jennifer, who do our art. The Lord and Lady, the podcast gods, you know, they just they're, they're they're the least well in some sense they're the least Lord-like and Lady-like in a good the good way, and the most Lord and Lady-like in in the good way. So, um, you know, and I'm not calling anybody unLord-like or unlady-like. That's totally different. So we're just lucky to have uh, our Lord and Lady and gods. I want to. um send a a special, special thing, especially to you, Smith, because you're kind of like our warrior God, since we don't like the warrior, uh, because he's, you know, one of those lame gods that thinks he's number one, but you're our warrior God, and we need you to watch over our deep friend Schrader, uh a little man with a big heart, who's also a big man, and he's only little because he's, you know, a man of the people, isn't he? We're talking about Nick Van Cor Gods, hopefully, Gods will have time to talk again before his big match. But Smith, keep an eye out for him. Maybe give him some sort of. Um, he did, he doesn't need protection. We just want to make sure that the other guys aren't cheating because uh, Nick Van you know, he, he's all heart, with also muscle and strength. Gods, I want to thank you for some new listeners too. While we're at it, Sue, wired awake. C.N.J. Brown Bear, Krangacopia, you got some people use nicknames like Cam Bon Von. that's right, I said it, gods, I said C.N.J. Brown Bear, I said Krangacopia, I meant Krangucopia, but you know, same, same, um, and then Cam Bon Von. gods, our new listeners, also Jennifer R., she's got a regular name, but she's not, there's nothing regular, Mark S., long time listener, He's the uh, original 8th man. Tisha also reached out to us. Gods, I want to tell you, keep an eye out for our buddy Pat Green and his new book, Night Moves. Make that book move off the shelves, God, off the pre-orders. Just looks like a wonderful book, Gods. I can't wait to read it. But you you need to make sure. Let's see who Miller, you should be in charge of that. It's hard work. Probably got made if the paper was made in a mill, so get on it. I want to uh, say uh, that we're thinking of Chelsea, too. Her apartment was broken into, gods. So, you know, what the heck were you guys doing, Jester? Mil- you know, what were you guys supposed to be watching over my listeners? Crone, you're supposed to know the future. How come you didn't let Chelsea know about it? Sorry, guys, I got interrupted. If you're, you know, but Crone, I was uh, chastising you for Chelsea's robbery or whatever. Break in. I also want to thank uh, for the, from the mail. I got mail from Alex. Murphy, and also for Vanessa's email. And guys, there's probably more people to thank. I want to thank also Apartment 342 for uh, reviewing the podcast and saying they tried to pay attention but their brain isn't processing the story or anything. They're going right to sleep, gods. So thank you for that. And also for Tisha Rue who has a mind that races at night but somehow our ramblings are helping Tishiru, too, God. So good work. Good work on that. Uh, bad work. On, you know, maybe you can make up for for Chelsea's uh, thing for, by, you know, Night Moves, the book. Get on that. Jennifer E., her books. And, uh, you know, come on. You're letting me down. That's it for now, guys. I'll be talking to you later. And, you know, I can't get, I'm not really mad at you guys. I'm just, you know, this is uh, entertainment. Okay, God, so this is just entertainment a little bit. Thank you. So we're kicking off Season 2, Episode 1. Guys, How, how, what a journey we've been on. We, uh, well, we, for those of you who have been here the whole time, we did Season 4. Honestly, I have no idea if I started that while the season was going on or after it was over. If somebody will have to let me know that. Uh, then we did Season 1. That's tw- 20, 20 wonderful episodes of Game of Thrones. Now we're in Season 2. The North Remembers... I'm just going to throw a little motherfucker at the end of that because but if that's what the people of the North, if they swore like that, but they usually, they don't use that word. Whew, I guess I'm thinking about it, yeah. Um, probably not the best place to use it in the Westeros universe. But so that's what the episode we're talking about. Uh, let's just get right into it. I mean, well, I should have, but so it opens up uh, with the credits. And then we got the Hound fighting some dude. And I like Joff, Well-struck dog, he says. And then the dude falls over the edge. And I think, again, I think this was right at the scene. I can't remember for sure. But, again, I was complimenting Jack Gleason on his fine acting. And he had this, like, I think it was this part of the episode where he had this stance. And uh, I don't know what his body language... For being a jerky king, what he does with his body and his face really complement everything else. So, again, uh, season one I said it at the, towards the end of the season, and I'll say it again. He's terrible. He's an excellent, <laughs> excellent, terrible king. Excellent job at being terrible king. Just like I, you guys compliment me. Yeah, excellent job, you know, dulling you off to sleep, droning. So... Then we got Serdantos the Red. We meet. Um, he has this, uh, he's like, Oh, you know, but you've been drinking. And Serdantos, Serdantos, you know, is not in the best shape anyway. And then he's like, Oh, no, I only had two cups of wine. And then he gets in a He's like, Oh, well, he you to drink as much as you want. Then Sansa saves this guy's life. And she says, when a man, or someone says, what a man sows on his name day, he reaps the rest of the year. I think Sansa says something, and then the hound steps in and says that. And then you see this thing with the hound and Sansa. This, um, father, I don't know if not fatherly, but the protective aspect of the hound kind of watching over Sansa. And then Joff kind of backs down with his, Sansa and he, she says, "Make him the fool." And He says, "From now on, you, from this day on, you're going to be my fool, Dantos." Pretty good, pretty good name for a fool, if you don't mind me, you know, opinion piece here, uh, you know, a little commentary. But uh, Dantos, It's just it sounds good. I mean, Dantos, Dantos. So that's two syllables, Dantos. I don't know if which is the hard syllable or they're both double hard, but uh, two syllable names are usually good for a lot of stuff. You know, Dantos, I can't start rhyming with it off the top of my head. But, you know, Sir Dantos, he could be tough, but usually you want a tough name. You want something like a V in there, something, or a K, maybe. Hound, what's the hound's name? Gregor Clegane, or he's Sandor Clegane? Something, I don't know. Let's keep moving. Then right after he calls, says the fool, who rolls in but our, our, the, the, Tyrion. And he, again, oh, another person, he's like filling up the screen with his, I, don't, I wish, I've always wanted to use this word, so I'm going to use it now, even if it's wrong, gravitas. I don't know if he was rocking some gravitas, but it felt like it. And he's like, beloved nephew. I just love that line. And someone's like, we heard you were dead. He's. And then uh, Tommen and Marcela say, oh, we're glad you're not dead. He says, so am I. Me too, dear. He says, death is so, me too, dear. Death is so boring, especially now with so much excitement in the world. And he's just so, um, and this is a term that's gotten, you know, ever since the whole uh, people became jerks. I don't know when it started, but flamboyant uh, started to be this derogatory term that uh, a holes would use against uh, and f- this is flamboyance and it's a wonderful flamboyance and flamboyance by the way is m- m- a wonderful thing if you're flamboyant don't let anybody say oh you're freaking flam you know I or i don't know let's 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 bring back flamboyance with a uh, you know uh, with like um and you know what I'm saying? Like uh, as a positive term. He, he's got this flamboyance to him, a wonderful flamboyance. And, and, and he's ebullient or, or something like that maybe too. Is that a word? And he says, enjoy your name day. There's work to be done. And then they got the raven came in with the news, the summer's over, and everybody's like, oh, you know, this is a definite thing because it's a white raven, and that means the, uh, uh, whatever, the council or the, all the maester, the big shot maesters met, and they said, oh boy, summer's over, trouble's coming. Baelish is like, don't worry, we got enough wheat for five winters, any longer than that, and we're going to have less peasants. And then they talk about the refugee crisis, and Cersei gets her uh, cutthroat person. She's like, you know, kick them all out, man. Get these refugees out of here. Shut. She says, shut the gates to the peasants. They belong in the fields. And then Tyrion rolls into this party. He says, you look more ravishing than ever, big sister. War agrees with you. Oh, my God, this writing. Oh, my God. I mean, I, I know sometimes I go off about this. Uh the dialogue, but you you know, have any idea how rare it is to have dialogue this wonderful? I I mean, seriously, whatever he says, you look wonderful or whatever the hell he says, war agrees with you. Man, I mean, it's the kind of shit they remember for hundreds of years. And I'm not kissing anybody's ass here. He says it's been a remarkable journey. She's like, "What are you doing here?" And if you could see, if you if you get a chance, this is a really good episode to rewatch. There's some unbelievably wonderful moments in this episode, especially with Cersei, and the look on her face when he says he's hand of the king is, I mean, the acting at its finest. And she says, "What do you know about warfare?" He goes, "Nothing, but I know about people." Joffrey is the king, and he had another one, another killer. He says, "You know, you love your children. That's your one redeeming quality." Well, that and your cheekbones. And he's actually correct. I mean, I think. And then, someone says, "Father would be furious," and then he says, "It must be." And this is when, um, what do they call it, when you kind of risk angering the gods? pathos or uh, something I remember when I minored in classics and I uh, you know how I don't I't I, I, don't, I, don't, I guess I don't no pathos is something else um, miasma no not that either I, but whatever you know you're risking anger and the gods there because says you know it must be hard for you being the disappointing child. then we jump to the then we jump to the north. And we got this old guy complaining about the Masons today aren't fit to carry their father's tools, their father's hammers. It's like it's something or other was built by drunk children. Then we realize Brand's listening to him. And Brand's not having this guy's crap. But then uh, the bald guy, I mean, I'm sorry, sir, the bald Meister, Meister, says, hey, You know, Brand, calm it down. Let's, we'll send a couple Masons out to fix your thing. All right, hit the road. He says, this is the job where you have to listen to people you'd rather not listen to, Brandon. So, you know, pull it together. Then we get this wolf cam, this wolf rolling around. We get this shot of the sky with this red comet streaking through the sky. And we have Hodor and Bran. And um, I apologize to the woman's name. I don't know her name right now. But she says the comet's Osha. Osha. Comet's an omen, she says. And like, what? She says, the skies don't fall for men. She goes, it means one thing, dragons. And how right she could... I mean, she's got her pulse on the omens of Westeros. Then we got this desert slog. Everybody's going through the desert. The gift horse dies. I didn't even think about the saying, don't look a gift horse in the mouth. So I don't have that... But uh, that was a gift horse that died, for sure. Drogo's first gift to, to Circe. And she's so frustrated. She says this line, "'How do I make starvation scream?' Sir Jorah says, "'Everything ends, even the Red Waste.'" They're in this desert, the Red Waste. And then they talk about, like, where are they going to go? Somebody's going to take your dragons. She's like, "'No one's going to take my dragons.'" And then Sergior is like looking at Khaleesi. He can already see that she is a leader and a big time leader. And he says, You know, you must be their strength like everyone around them. And she says, A nice little line, as you have been mine. Uh, and then she goes to one of her old Khal Drogos captain type guys and she says, You have never failed me. And this is another wonderful, wonderful touch. They're speaking in Dothraki, and she says, you have never failed me. And this guy's one of the guys that stuck it out. You know, he, he sees Khaleesi's potential, and he decides to use the common tongue instead of, like, he's learning whatever that common tongue or whatever the hell they call it. And he says, uh, this would probably be a pretty bad time to start. And uh, just a tiny little thing in there, but so wonderful. Says so much about their relationship, about him, and just humorous, too. You know, light a little bit, like... This will be a terrible time to start. I don't know, one of those guys. And then we're in the north. I don't know why I wrote the word down, sledge. I think Sam was on a sledge. Sledgehammer, no. And then one of the guys, unfortunately I don't know his name. Uh, I probably will in the fourth season. But they get to this, like, rundown outpost, and he says, I was born in a place like this. Later I fell on hard times. And then we get this Craster who's running this outpost. Guy's a dirtbag. But he's also like the second bitter old man we've had. We had um, the guy at the bridge, Walder Frey. Then we get this guy, Craster. Walder Craster. I don't know if they're, maybe they're related. They're both old jerks and kind of pervs, to be honest. He starts talking about some Mace Randor, Randor. Not sure that might be a StarCraft carrier too, a StarCraft ca- character from the first StarCraft game. I think there was a Mace Randar in there. Um, well, I, I don't know. And then him and Jon Snow don't get along. He says, "Doesn't make you jealous." And uh, the boss guy, uh, Sir Jorah's dad Mormont, he's like, "Yeah, your how your roof, your rules." And then he gets mad at Jon Snow. He's like. If you want to learn, if you want to lead one day, you need to learn to follow first. You, you jerk. Then we get this nice scene, especially if this is your first time watching Game of Thrones. And then I'm ruining it for you that. But this is, like I said, you could stop it here and listen to another episode. And then because this is just such a good episode, but they, you get this nice disorient disorientation through this scene. Uh, Because you get this dragon statue and then you got this guy doing this chariots of fire with a torch on the beach. And I'm pretty sure this is a first taste of all this stuff. So it would be very confusing for the first time in a good way. You got this woman praying to the Lord of Light or all these people. You got these effigies of the old gods burning. And then she has this line, for the night is dark and full of terror. And then you get this old um, guy looks like an abbot, um, like somebody, like Tuck Fryer a little bit. He says, is this how you treat your old gods? He's trying to shame everybody. Which shame, you know, come on. Shame and religion fell out of favor. Uh, you know, this lady's burning stuff, buddy. You got no chance against a beautiful red woman with your shame, you know, with a shame spiral or whatever. Uh, Walter, what was that guy's name? That now senator, reelected senator, uh, the guy in Wisconsin, Al Franken, and she says to him, "You smell of fear, fear, piss, and old bones." Oh boy, that's nice. I mean, and it's a nice way to be mean. Then she makes this prediction: says a warrior is going to draw a blade from a fire, and that sword will be light bringer. And then we get Stannis Baratheon, I think this is the first time we meet him, and he goes there and pulls the sword out of the fire, holds it up, slams it down, everybody gets on their knees. He says, Lord, cast your light upon us, for the night is dark and full of terror. And then you get this side between the uh, Friar Tuck guy and this other character. Now, non-spoiler alert. Those of you that have been with me the whole time know this. This character, I'm not going to tell you his name yet, but this is my favorite character on Game of Thrones. Not by far. I mean, by far compared to some characters, but this is my favorite guy. Uh, This is the guy that I would choose. Well, I'm probably choosing my best friend. More my sidekick. He's more of a, hmm, is that a tough? Because there's another character in season four that is so cool be tough not to choose him as a best friend. But this guy is also cool in his own way, but I don't want to say his name. I'll tell you his nickname is the Onion Knight, just so you know. That's how I roll. You know, I'm hanging with Onion Knights. But they have this uh, side where the uh, Fryer says, loyal service means telling hard truths. And he says, if you tell him the truth, and this guy says, what is the truth? And again, another scene you might pass over, but I think that summarizes a lot of all Game of Thrones in that thing. And then maybe it sets up who this guy is, the Onion Knight, uh, and what his role is going to be, or maybe not, I don't know. Then we get another scene where we set up who this Stannis Baratheon is, because he he's got this guy writing this letter, and he says, that my b- beloved brother, and Stannis says, "Uh, he wasn't my beloved brother. I didn't love him, he didn't love me. It's a lie, take it out. And it's like everybody's like, well, this is just kind of, uh, uh, well, first they say that, so it's just kind of, you know, how you write letters. And he's like, nope, it's a lie, take it out. So we get this idea that Stannis is a bit of uh he's going to be interesting guy to deal with, I guess is what, what I'm saying. And Just hilarious, like, yeah, he's not my beloved brother. I didn't love him, he didn't love me. And I think they had a table there that looked like a map of Westeros. I'm not positive on that. And then my buddy, the Onion Knight,'s kind of like talking to Stannis about the, you know, making peace with somebody. He's like, oh, no, no, we're here with the Lord of Light. And he's like, well, how many ships does the Lord of Light have? And then the Red Woman comes in and the Abbot tries to poison her. It doesn't work out she has this line, I think she says, The fire burns them all away. I didn't write prefer what that was referring to. Then we're at Rob's camp. Everybody's saying, Your grace to Rob. He goes to see Jamie. Jamie says, King in the north. So now we know from last time, it's king in the north, not king of the north. And Jamie says, uh, You want to... He goes, you Have grown. you grown fond of me, Stark? You want to trade gossip like a couple of fish wives? And then, as the scene goes on, we see that Jamie's terrified of wolves. Then we have Shay and uh, Tyrion in their uh, room. And Shay's talking about how much she loves the city. Very nice scene, very descriptive. <laughs> very descriptive. The mat- mattress is uh, a little too firm for Tyrion. The next scene again. Why suggest rewatching it? We get this scene with Lord Baelish and Cersei. That is just magnificent. And it starts out. She says, "Hey, Lord Baelish, you mind if I ask you a favor?" I mean, she's got about five soldiers with her, but she always does. And he says, "Oh yeah, why not? You know, go ahead." And then they're just kind of sizing each other up. Like first they're talking around it. Um, again, this could be something I know there's a lot of you out there, especially young people still in school that are like working on writing stuff. This is a scene about how, I mean, this is how you write a scene. Believe me, I wasn't paying attention. I'm doing the opposite, you know, (laughs) but, uh, you know, they're talking about his pen and then, you know, feeling each other out. And then it's like, boom, she's like, let me tell you a little tale. And then he tries to go back at her, and he says, blah, 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 knowledge is power. And then she shows him and tells him, power is power. And then you have a capstone at the end of the scene, which is the Lannister song playing gently in the background, the rains of Castamere. And so it goes. And so, and so he said, and so he said. Uh, then we get back to the North. They're talking about the North being a free and independent kingdom. You got a Lannister cousin or something. Then you get Robin Theon. Theon's like, let me talk to my dad about getting some ships. Then you get Cat. She's like, that guy's dad's and you know, we don't want to do business with him. And she's like, you know, Renly Baratheon's got 100,000 soldiers. Let's make a deal with him. He says, all right, well, I trust you to do it, Mom. You go deal with Renly. And then we get another epic scene. You get Joffrey remodeling the throne room. He says to his mother, she says, what's going on here? He talks about the Targaryens. Then he says, you know, he says a seat for a conqueror needs a room to match it. And then they go back and forth. And he says, you know, the king does not ask. The king commands. And then he asks about these rumors about her and Uncle Jamie and that he's their child and, you know, it gets ugly and she smacks him, which is like, you almost like are like, whoa. At first, you're like, okay, whoa, Cersei crossed this line. And she's, but then you see it towards the end of the scene this look on her face watching him and his reaction and knowing that that was a mistake and that she has lost him, I think. And I think it's just again, uh, Wow, what 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 wonderful, wonderful, what a wonderful show we have here with Game of Thrones. What a gift to be able to watch these wonderful actors, wonderful writing, wonderful source material, wonderful production. But we're not done because we have Roz, our prostitute friend from the north. She's given sex lessons, and then things take a pretty nasty turn where uh, the you know. Cersei's like trying to track down all Robert's kids, and uh, they they're like, "Well, where's this one?" They finally get everybody, and then they're like, "What about that one kid, Gendry?" And they're like, "Well, he went north with uh, the, the Night's Watch," and they're like, "Well, how are we going to find him? He's got some bull skull or a bull helmet, and he's got a bull's bull's head helmet or something." And they're like, "All right, let's go after you know, send some soldiers after him." And then they show the guys walking, uh, Aria among them, uh, north from the Night's Watch to the Night's Watch. I mean, they're not very far out of town, right, just yet. And that's the episode. A, a lovely episode as it is, again, if you have a chance, to rewatch it. What are we going to talk about tonight? We're going to talk about so just real quick. We're going to talk about staples, like wheat was a staple mention, how much wheat they had, so we'll talk about staples. We're going to talk about masons and masonry. We're going to talk about comets, holy comets. We'll talk about timely. And then, of course, we'll have a visit from Sir Pounce. Hopefully, ideally, we will, and some prayers. All right, so thanks for being here. And let's keep the show on the road, like Gendry and Arya and uh, future friends will meet. So Sir Dantos, his last name is uh, Hollard, and I'm, I think I've covered his, him in his history in a previous episode in season four, but I wanted to revisit because we see him with this breastplate, which again, I couldn't find any production info about the breastplate, but I haven't yet watched all of, um, like season twos where they start doing the enhanced stuff on the uh, HBO Go app, so I still have to go through episode one and watch all the bonus material. So maybe, but he had this wonderful breastplate that was like, uh, it had like the American flag stripes, but with three crowns. So I was like, huh, did they do that on purpose and why is it? Uh? But anyway, let's read from our buddies over at Game of Thrones Wiki House Hollard. And. Dantos Hollard says, once House Hollard was strong once, House on the Rise. House Hollard is an extinct vassal house of the crown lands, holding fealty to House Baratheon of King's Landing. The house was once powerful, but over the years it fell into disgrace. The uh, known members are Sir Dantos, Dantos the Red, the last living member of the family. He was formerly a knight, but now he's uh, the fool. And uh, Sir Simon Hollard, a knight, he was ca- killed he was killed by Sir Berston Selmy in revenge for the death of Sir Gawain Gaunt in the uh during the defiance of Duskendale. This was before the series began, but Sir Barriston was once the head of the uh you know, King Kingsguard or whatever, watching over uh uh well Mr. Baratheon, King Baratheon, and now Joffrey. But then he got fired because they said he was too old. and This is what, the other thing that was only other thing that was interesting is that uh, in the novels, House Hollard is an ancient house sworn to House Darkland, has three daughters. Blah blah blah. The whole house has stuff happen. But Dantos, his his life was saved by Sir Barristan So I really like that. Another thing to like about uh, Sir Berestan. But That's it. That's just a little thing about uh Dantos. All right, the next thing I want to cover is staples, and I'm not talking about the one metal ones. I'm talking about food because they talk about wheat, which I guess is they talk about wheat, which I guess is a the uh, staple of the whatever you call it diet in Westeros. But let's go over to our Wikipedia. Staple food is staple food, sometimes referred to as staples food eaten routinely in such quantities that it constitutes a dominant portion of the standard diet in a given population, supplying a large fraction of the needs of energy-rich materials and uh, other nutrients as well. Most people live on a diet based on just a small number of staples. They vary from place to place, but typically they're inexpensive or readily available foods that supply one or more of three organic macronutrients, needed for survival and health, carbohydrates, proteins, and fats. Typical example staples are tuber root crops, grains, legumes, legumes, whatever, other seeds. Staple food may be eaten often as every day or every meal. Early agricultural civilizations valued food. They established the staples because in addition to providing nutrition, they were suitable for storage over long periods of time without decay. Such storable foods are the only possible staples during seasons of shortage, like long winters, such as dry seasons, cold temperate winters, they say, against times which harvests have been stored during season, you know, blah, blah, blah. Many staples are derived from cereals, such as wheat, barley, rye, maize, or rice, or starchy tubers, or root vegetables, such as potatoes, yams, taros, and cassava. Other staples include pulses, dried legumes, that's beans, all right, Sago, from the pith of a sago palm tree, and fruits such as breadfruits and plantains. Staple foods may also contain some oil or sugar. I don't know, that doesn't make sense to me. Demographic profiles. Of the 50,000 plant species in the world, only a few hundred contribute significantly to human food supplies. Just 15 crop plants provide 90% of, holy crap, 90% of the world's food energy intake, exclusive of meat, with rice, maize, and wheat comprising two-thirds of human food consumption. These three stand alone as staples of over 4 billion people. Although there are over 10,000 species in the cereal family, just a few have been widely cultivated over the past 2,000 years. Rice alone feeds almost half of humanity. Roots and tubers are important staples for 1 billion people in the developing world, accounting for roughly 40% of the world food eaten by half the population of sub-Saharan Africa. Cassava is another major staple food in the developing world providing a basic diet for 500 million people. Roots and tubers are high in carbohydrates, calcium, and vitamin C, but low in protein. we got to get Bill Gates on this. I mean, he's doing water and mosquitoes, right? Staple foods in different parts of this world are functional weather patterns, local terrain, farming constraints, acquired tastes, and ecosystems. For example, the main energy source of staples in the African diet are cereals, 46%, roots and tubers, 20%, animal products, 7%. In Western Europe, the main staples in the average diet are animal products, 33%, cereals, 26%, roots and tubers, 4%. Most of the global human population lives on a diet based on one or more of the following staples, rice, wheat, maize, or corn, millet, sorghum, roots, tubers, and animal products. Regional staple food, staple foods include rye, soybeans, barley, oats, and teff. With economic development and free trade, many companies have shifted away from low nutrient-density staple foods to higher nutrient-density staple foods as well as towards greater meat consumption. Despite this trend, there is growing recognition of the importance of traditional staple crops and nutrition. Efforts are underway to identify better strains, with superior nutrition, disease resistance, disease resistance, and higher yields. Some foods, such as quinoa, pseudo-cereal grains, who the hell do you get off calling pseudo-cereal? Call me that again. That originated, they came from the Andes, were also staple food centuries ago. Oka- Ulaco, and Aramath, Arama, whatever, they can put all those three words in there to throw me off. It'll be in the show notes. Seeds are other foods claimed to be staples in Andean history. Similarly, pemmican was a staple of the Plains Indians. Global consumption of specialty grains such as quinoa in 2010 was very small compared to other. Don't call me pseudo-cereal. What distracted me. Freaking quinoa haters! Okay, here's the ten staples that feed the world by uh, production: uh, maize, corn, eight hundred and twenty-three million metric tons; wheat, six hundred ninety million metric tons; rice, right by right there, six hundred eighty-five; potatoes at four, three hundred fourteen million; cassava, two hundred thirty-three million; soybeans at two hundred thirty-one. Sweet potatoes at 110 million. Sorghum, I have no idea what that is. I thought that was an ingredient in processed food. 66 million. Yams, 52 million. And plantains, 34. Refining. Rice is most commonly eaten as cooked entire grains, but other cereals are milled into flour or meal, which are used to make bread noodles and other pasta, porridges, and mushes, such as polenta or mealy pap. Mush Mashed root vegetables can be used to make similar porridge-like dishes, including poi and fufu. Pulses, particularly chickpeas and starchy root vegetables such as kana, can also be made into flour. Part of a whole. Although nutritious, vegetable staples generally do not, by themselves, provide a full range of nutrients. So other foods are needed to be added to the diet to ward off malnutrition. For example, the deficiency D disease pellagra. Uh, why they need oh, pe- 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 whatever, pellagra? Pellagra. I don't know. Pellagra. pal pell, Is associated with a diet com- pe- consisting of maize and the b- berry berry with a diet of white rice, corn berry berry and white rice. It's not. Yeah. Nutritional content. So this has a nutritional content. That's about it. Um, Let's run through this nutritional content. Um, Let's just get a couple hits of who's in first place. Okay, for water as a component, potatoes have the most water. And sorghum and corn have the least amount of water. Energy, the kilocalories per um, 100 grams. This is per 100-gram portion. Maize and rice, 1,500 kilocalories per gram. Um, the lowest potatoes and sweet potatoes. Protein. Soybean has the most, 13. Then sorghum. And then wheat. Fats. You got soybeans again. Wow, soybeans. I wonder they, isn't all half of Middle America soybeans now? Um... Nothing even comes close oh maize comes close for corn carb carbohydrates rice is in first eighty then maize wheat wheat's up there seventy one sorghum's up there maybe I get into some sorghum or I get some of that uh carbohydrates fiber wheat's got the most fiber the uh, uh, probably whole wheat sugar sweet potato uh, oh no yeah, plantain and sweet potato. Calcium, soybean wins again. Wow, soybean, iron, the rest of the stuff's boring. It's all pant you know, pantheonic acid. Who cares about that unless you need you know, unless you're desperate for it. <laughs> B six. You guys B six just is a, this reminds me of something totally unrelated. But if you ever call if you ever have a, um, a reason to call a bingo game, uh, always be on the lookout for B4. Like when you're you're pulling the numbers, that's the best one to make jokes. I was working at the Anthony. I was volunteering at the Anthony Quinn Public Library. This was a long time ago. Helping run the. Uh, uh, children's summer program, uh, summer reading game type stuff, after school stuff, or no school. So it was, you know, and I got to call bingo. And I must, have, I was, every time B4 came up, I was like, look, B4, you will leave. Yeah, it's just, you know, it's like E7 is a lot harder to make more jokes about. But B4, I just kept trying to pull B4. So that's it uh, about that. Um, let's go over to wheat in general. Wheat's to see. Let's see what time we're in. I guess that's we're probably good. Um, I'll put some stuff in the show notes about wheat too, so we have that. But then you know, let's move on. Hi right, guys. Uh, I want to talk about masonry next. Masonry because they are talking masons when Brian was you know dealing with the one of those whiny guys that comes in asking. Well, you could you he's complaining about how. Things aren't as good as they used to be. Our brand's not, you know, shut up, buddy. But we're talking about masonry and masons and not the organization of Freemasonry, uh, the fraternal organization, which intrigues me. And uh, it's surrounded in conspiracy theories and mystery. But that's a road um, of both uh, controversy and conspiracy that, you know, better left for another time. But masonry actually has a direct relevance here. So masonry is the building of structures from individual units laid and bound together by mortar. The term masonry can also refer to the units themselves. The common materials of masonry construction are brick, stone, marble, granite, travertine, limestone, cast stone, concrete block, glass block, stucco tile. Stucco, really? And cob. I don't know what cob is. Masonry is generally a highly durable form of construction. However, the materials used and the quality of the mortar and workmanship and the pattern in which these units are assembled can significantly affect the durability of the overall masonry construction. As this old man said when he was whining, now, this is from all from Wikipedia. Applications. Masonry is commonly used for the walls of buildings, retaining walls in buildings. Brick and concrete blocks are the most common types of masonry used in industrialized nations and may either be weight-bearing or veneer. Concrete blocks, especially those with hollow cores, offer various possibilities in masonry construction. They can generally provide great compressive strength and are best suited to structures with light transverse loading when cores remain unfilled. Lost me there, I don't know what you're talking about, but uh, filling some or all of the cores with concrete or concrete with steel reinforcement, typically rebar, offers much greater tensile and lateral strength to structures. Advantages, the usage of such material as bricks and stones can increase the thermal mass of a building and protect the building from fire. Most types of masonry typically will not require painting. Well, there's a huge bonus, and so can provide a structure with reduced life cycle costs. Masonry is a non-combustible product. Masonry walls are more resistant to projectiles. Hey, whoa, boy. Wonder they got masons back in here, back in the Westeros, such as debris from hurricanes or tornadoes, or you know, giants, dragons, soldiers, whatever. Masonry structures built in compression, masonry structures built in compression, preferably with lime mortar, can have a useful life of more than 500 years, as I just said, it, 500 years, to, compared to 30 to 100. For structures of steel or reinforced concrete, disadvantages, extreme weather, I said extreme, I meant, under certain circumstances can cause degradation of masonry wall surfaces due to frost damage. Masonry tends to be heavy and must be built upon a strong foundation, such as reinforced concrete, to avoid settling or cracking Kind of like Sir Robert there King Robert sorry your grace other than concrete masonry construction does not lend itself well well to mechanization and requires more skilled labor than stick framing <sighs> so you know once we beat the robots we'll be going back to masonry because you know then the robots can't build that but, I don't know why that would stop the robots, but... Structural limitations. Masonry has high compressive strength under vertical loads, but low tensile strength. Low tensile strength against twitching or stretching unless reinforced. The tensile strength of masonry walls can be increased by thickening the wall or building masonry piers, vertical columns, or ribs at intervals, where practical steel reinforcements such as wind posts can be added. Dry-set masonry the strength of masonry walls is not entirely dependent on the bond between the building material and the mortar the friction between interlocking blocks of masonry is often strong enough to provide a great deal of strength on its own the blocks sometimes have grooves or other surfaces featured features to enhance the interlocking and some dry-set masonry structures forego mortar altogether brick Solid brickwork is made of two or more, something of brick with units running horizontally, bound together with bricks running transverse to the wall. Each row of bricks is known as a course. The pattern of the headers and the stretchers is employed to give rise to different bonds, such as the common bond, the English bond, the Flemish bond. Bonds can different strength and insulating ability, vertically staggered bonds tend to be somewhat longer and less prone to cracking than a non-staggered bond. Uniformity and rusticity. Rusticity. The wide selection of brick styles and types generally available in industrialized nations allow much variety in the appearance of the final product. In buildings built during the 1950s to 70s, a high degree of uniformity of brick and accuracy in masonry was typical in the period since this style In this period since, the style is thought to be too sterile, so attempts were made to emulate older, rougher work. Some brick structures, surfaces are made to look particularly rustic by including burnt bricks, which have a darker color or irregular shape. Others may use antique salvage bricks or new bricks, maybe artificially aged by applying various surface treatments, such as tumbling. I guess ever have a rock tumbler. Talk about a toy that uh, I salute you if you ever tumbled any rocks. I think I might have done it once. But that's a, a hobby with a, a high, um, a, lot, a lot of work and patience. Man, I'd like to, actually, I'd like, maybe that should be like, you should put that at the top. If you're applying for any jobs, put that at the top of your list. You know, I was president and CEO of this corporation, but let's be honest with you. I spent about seven years of my life tumbling rocks. And if you have any familiar, you know my, I mean like a freaking, the most reliable, patient, iron-willed person, man. I was waiting for those rocks to tumble, staring at the tumbler with an intensity, trying to make those rocks, you know, tumble. You have to do it in different courses. So I'm uh, I'm off track again um, with this uh, rock tumbling interview, but let's get back to Wherever I was, who knows serpentine masonry. Crinkle, crinkle wall is a brick wall that follows a serpentine path. Crinkle, crankle. I love that. Crinkle, Crankle. Uh, rather than a straight line, the type of wall is more resistant to toppling than a straight wall. So much more so that it may be the single rift of reinforced brick. So that a space longer length it may be more economical than a straight wall. Not sure what that means, but I like it. Concrete block. Blocks of cinder. Concrete. Ordinary blocks. Okay, that's like all, that's long. Ajax. We got, oh, let's talk a little stonework. You know what? Let's, um, let's skip over a little something called Philadelphia City Hall. Because my brother lives in Philadelphia. It's a city of brotherly love of, uh, philio. Agape. No, Filio. yes. And it also happens to be the current largest masonry building in the world, I think. Philadelphia City Hall is the house of government for the city of Philadelphia in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania at 548 feet. That's 167 meters, including the statue of founder William Penn at the top, city founder. It is the tallest habitable building. It was the tallest habitable building in the world from 1901. To 1908, it remained the tallest in Philadelphia until it was passed in 1932 by the Gulf Tower in Pittsburgh. It was the largest in Philadelphia until the construction of One Liberty Place in 1984. and ended the informal gentleman's agreement that limited the height of buildings in the city. Oh dear, somebody violated a gentleman's agreement. It's the 16th tallest building today in the uh, state. City Hall has been the world's tallest masonry building since 1953, collapse of the pinnacle of the Mole Antonelliana some in Turin. Its weight is borne by granite and brick walls up to 22 feet, 6.7 meters thick. The principal exterior materials are limestone, granite, and marble. In 2001, 2007, actually, the building was voted 21st on the American Institute of Architects list of Americans, 150 favorite U.S. structures. let see, uh, Pity Hall, C- Pity Hall, <laughs> that's like something a mean person, oh, why don't you go down to Pity Hall and cry? No, City Hall, Philadelphia City Hall, one Penn Square, that's why I said Pity Hall, because pe- pe- in uh, Philadelphia, PA, 19107 is the zip code. And like I said, nineteen oh one is the completion date. Clocking in at five hundred forty-eight feet, one hundred sixty-seven meters. Nine floors. Technical detail. William Penn sitting, standing at the top. I don't know what he's doing. I don't have a close-up of him, but I am sure he's looking regally. Um, you know, Demick, whatever. If I knew who, I'm, yeah, I am not a historian. My brother's a history teacher, but you know, and I talked to him on the phone today. But um didn't come up in conversation. So that's it. Mason Re Masons do it. Uh, so thank you for, thank you. I mean if you Masons, that's cool. You know, let me know about it. So this episode of Game of Thrones had a comet in it. Comet a comet. Not a comment. There's lots of comments. But a comet. And I remember the comet from the books. I remember it from the first time I saw this show this episode, and uh, how can you forget a red comet, Uh, How possibly streaking across the sky, even looks just powerful, so it made me look up like two things. One, are we going to ever see a red comet? The answer, unfortunately, is no, at least according to this article over at universetoday.com. Why you'll never see a red comet like in Game of Thrones, written by Elizabeth Howell on March 15, 2013. A red comet appears in the sky. People quake in its wake. This phenomenon, which happens in the second season of a medieval fantasy, Game of Thrones, had us all wondering. First of all, no offense, but if you said it's medieval fantasy, you're kind of uh, a little bit off, maybe. I don't know. Maybe that's my opinion. Maybe I'm being a reactionary. Can you ever actually see a red comet? We talked to Matthew Knight, an astronomer at Lowell observatory in Arizona who observes comets. Comet, comets. He gave us some answers just in time for the third season of Game of Thrones. At first blush, he said the comet's red color wouldn't be possible because the strongest emissions from comets are in the blue and green regions, mostly from neutral gases such as hydroxide and cyanide. There is a type of emission that's close to red called forbidden oxygen which occurs when atoms make a rare energy transition between states of excitement. But it's very faint and short-lived, Knight wrote. The visible light from a comet comes from a combination of reflected solar continuum, sunlight reflecting off of dust grains, and cometary emission, neutral and or ionized molecules of gas that emit photons at a particular wavelength. The sunlight reflecting off of the dust grains basically looks like sunlight, since the sun appears yellow-white, this component cannot look red. In our world, not this isn't a criticism of Game of Thrones. A small caveat is that due to certain physical properties of dust grains, comet dust often actually does redden sunlight slightly when measured with sensitive equipment. However, this reddening is at a very low level and not enough to cause a reflected sunlight to appear deep red like Game of Thrones. The strongest comet emissions in the region where human eyes can see are blue and green. So what ingredient does a comet need to look like the one in Game of Thrones? According to Knight, it would have to meet these criteria. Be visible in daylight, which happens only once a century. Be close to the sun, he supposes this one is given how straight the tail is. And have a strange composition that is different from anything we know in the solar system. The composition could be that forbidden oxygen he talked about. Forbidden oxygen, or for me, and my forbidden oxygen. Combining from a comet whose ices are carbon monoxide and carbon dioxide, that would be hard because those types of ices wouldn't survive long when exposed to sunlight. If we really wanted to think in a science fiction vein... Uh, Knight suggests that maybe the comet could be made up unpredictably. Alternatively, it could be something else entirely unknown and cometary. Comet, comet, cometary. That one's hard because you're saying cometary, cometary, chemistry or dust with really weird properties causing no shit, dude. Of course, this is going to be causing a much stronger reddening than is normally seen. In any event, the composition would be so anomalous that this comet, that's that's why it's an omen, Uh, this comet would almost certainly have originated in the solar system. These people, this is when your brain, this is what I'm talking about, your brain gets too smart for your own good. That would make comet scientists very interested in studying it. But don't despair yet. The comet Ison may be bright enough for daylight viewing when it swings by the Earth in 2013. I miss that. Um, comets are unpredictable beasts, but we're pretty sure of one thing. You're not sure that, can, no matter how bright it is, it won't look red. If it's like one of the friggin' comets we've seen, which is one, he said, ever. Or so, I don't know. I don't know why I'm getting riled up about comets, but we should be excited because this next story is exciting. Now, if you're a hardcore listener to the podcast, I'm sure you're waiting for me to bring up the uh, 1980s movie Night of the Comet. But I just don't think we have time with this exciting other news to talk about it. But if you want to watch that movie or learn more, I'll put stuff about it in the show notes. Wonderful film that I don't remember anything about except that it was too uh, – uh, yeah, I just remember there was like I think at one time Mac-10 – Uh, someone was wielding a a woman, a young girl, was wielding MAC-10s shooting at uh, zombies or bad guys or something. But it was a campy, fun film from what I remember. But anyway, big news is, the European Space Agency is about to friggin' land something on a comet. Is that cool or what? After I just went off on Comet Scientists, anyway. uh, And this is from the Scientific American by Caleb A. Scharf, Schraf, Scharf, I think S C H A R F. This is a just published article, hot off the freaking presses, November fourth, nineteen twenty. <laughs> it's hot off the presses, November fourth, nineteen fourteen. No, twenty fourteen. The surreal task of landing on a comet. Comet. And uh, he he says that the views are expressed only of his. These are only Caleb's views, not Scientific Americans. On November twelfth, it's right around the corner, as I said, 2014. The European Space Agency Rosetta space agency's Rosetta mission will eject the small robotic robotic lander Philae. Philae fly fly P H I L A E. Shoot. Um, on a trajectory that should take it down to the surface of Comet 67P-Churyomov-Gerasimenko, or 67 P for short. Alrighty, Rosetta is maneuvering from its 10-kilometer orbit to get in the right place to dis- dis- deploy Philae. Phil, call him Philae you know, after that building. The landing site is on the head of the rubber duck-shaped cometary nucleus. Cometary, cometary, nucleus. Although it could be likened to a half-eaten rotten apple core, this target area is now named Agilakia, after an island in the Nile River here on Earth where a place where they... Supposed to the Nile River? That's not on Earth. <laughs> oh boy, uh, scientists are going to be out to get me. So I love science. <laughs> our, our brains just operate a lot differently. If yours operate, if, if <laughs> uh, science, I'm laughing at myself. Scientists, a place where the ancient temple of Isis was moved after its original island home of Phil's flies how it was flooded during the construction of the Aswan Dam. This is the part that's important. It represents a remarkable stage in the history of space or exploration, but perhaps equally extraordinary is the tangible sense of just how alien and surreal this place is. Uh, It shows that there's a a couple of pictures, and I'll put the link in the show notes. looks really cool. During November 11th to 12th, a go-no-go decision will be made on the release of Philly. With a 28-minute one-way light travel time from Earth, this will be an entirely autonomous operation if given the go. It will take Philly about seven hours to drop towards a G- Gilaquia. And here's one of the trickiest and most nerve-wracking pieces of the landing. The nucleus of 67 pcp is spinning. Like an N over M dumbbell. Yep, a rubber duck, apple core, dumbbell. No single description quite captures the nature of this object. If that spin holds steady at about 12.4 hours per rotation, Philly should hit the right spot. But as the comet heats up and loses material, the spin may shift by tiny amounts. With some luck. So what's our error? That's what I want to know. What's our error window or whatever they call it? With some luck, it should work out just fine, but if you watch this video, it's a bit like a fairground game where you try to hit a crazy, tumbling target for a prize. If Philly lands successfully, it'll help fire up a host of experiments and instruments using up the energy of its primary battery over the course of about 64 hours. At, after that point, Philly's life expectancy, expectancy Hinges on how well its solar panels can recharge those batteries, hopefully well enough to take it through sixty seven P slash C dash P's closest approach to the sun in March twenty fifteen. Now that's cool, man. We're landing some sort of thing of a jig on a friggin' comet. Um uh and I don't know why there hasn't been more hype about it. I mean, the guy was in the news about stuff, people running for stuff. I mean, I did vote, but, uh, and we got a freaking some sort of, or maybe I, well, I just guess I swore the news off for the most part. But yeah, this thing's going you know, to land on a freaking comet. I wish I could have, uh, next time, if, if anybody's listening to the Euro, if European Space Agency, I know it's a bad idea. So I know that ahead of time, putting it out there anyway. And you can sneak me into one of these things. You know, I could curl up really good. I have a high, um, whatever, internal core temperature situation. So I'll be warm. You know, just give me a couple of freaking bags of Tang. I'll land on that freaking comet, man. That would be so awesome. And I, mean, I realize that, uh, you know, according to science, that's not possible. But whew, uh, it still sounds fun, you know. And I'm not even going to put a. am fl- not going to stake any flag in there. Um, I'm going to, you know, just say, hey, uh, you know, hi, everybody. Comets are awesome. And then I'm going to, maybe I'll bring a Roman candle that's red. And then, you know, shoot it across the earth like Wally Eva style. And, you know, you guys will say, hey, there's the red comet. Must be dragons. So that's it on comets. But cool news. So we got that coming up. So, you know, hopefully, uh, Crone, you know, you guys, but that's another thing, you know, sell some books and make sure this thing lands on the comet. Thank you. Hello again. This is Lord Tommen, uh, who's saying hello. I hope, uh, it's almost like we're becoming friends, kind of. I hope we're friends, but we are, you know, or acquaintances or something, such thing. I'm not best friends like my best friend. one Sir Pounce, and the reason I'm here is to tell you another tale of brave Sir Pounce, the bravest cat in the world, and the best friend a boy's ever known. And that's Sir Pounce, and I'm Tommen, his best friend, and the mayor. Oh, hi, Sir Pounce. Sir Pounce, oh, he's rubbing his face against my arm. And that's Sir Pounce saying, Hello, Tommen. You are right high, Or something such thing. And now Sir Pounce is curled up next to me, looking at me and saying, What are you doing? Scratch that part of my neck that's close to my ears and do it gently and with your thumb and your finger the way you're supposed to. Okay, I'm doing it. And so now I have time while Sir Pounce is here comforting me I comfort you by telling you a tale of the greatest, you know, the cat that, beyond all cats, that, you know, the greatest cat that's ever been known, the bravest cat that's ever been known, Sir Pounce. And this is the continuing tale of Sir Pounce. And the quest to wait. Sir Pounce's quest to get a, uh, what do you whisker from a cat in every kingdom. And Sir Pounce told me this tale just yesterday when I was sent to bed without supper. For uh, biting a step scepter, I know, Sir Pounce last week told me not to bite anyone. And that sat in my mind, and I was angry at Joff or something. And then, I uh, yes, I bit a scepter. T- just, I was ch- curious, I'd never... Uh, I, uh, mother said not to speak of it, and they said go to bed without dinner. And I cried, so... Sir Pounce came in my room to cheer me up, and he told me this tale. Of when he was in a place called the Reach... And he went to a place called High Garden. Someone he said he'd never been there. He heard many tales of a place called High Garden. In his mind, he pictured a beautiful garden, somehow lifted off of the ground. And he was curious how they would do that, whether they would do it with uh, metal chains or platforms or build it up or some sort of magic floating. He said, It turns out. That it was just a name. Uh, The castle has many gardens and it's high on a hill. But he wasn't allowed. But he said he went into this and he said for miles around this reach, everything growing everywhere is wheat. And Sapan said there's good things and bad things about fields of wheat. And he says when you first get in there, you know, it feels good. But then things start to stick in your fur and it stops feeling good. But Sapan said, it's also a good place to take a nap for the wheat gets warm by the sun, but not too warm. And so he said he was taking a nap in the wheat, making his way to the high garden, which turned out, uh, technically, I guess it's a high garden. But And uh, he heard, whoosh, whoosh, whoosh. And then he looked and un- all the way to the horizon, Sapan said. There was thousands and thousands of children and men and women Harvesting the wheat. And so Pounce said it made this sound because they all went in unison, wish, 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 wish. And then they would sing a song, a working song, so Pounce said. And he said it was a, uh, it was a, he said it woke him up from his nap. He wasn't too pleased. And he said to these people, Why do uh, all of you, is this a celebration of wheat? And they said, No, man, this is our job. Were wheat wheat threshers were threshing the wheat and collecting it and he said, Oh is there going to be a harvest festival for the wheat and he said no no. This wheat's getting shipped to uh King's Landing to the Red Keep. We don't get any of it. It's for that darn king, whoever the heck it is right now. Cause Sir this wasn't current, so uh that jerky king who that's my father. But, um, it could be a jerk, it's true. And Sir Pound said, well, what do you, what you guys all you eat the wheat? I said, no, we'll be, uh, we'll be beaten down and whipped. If we eat wheat, we don't eat wheat, we eat the stalks. Uh, we get the stalks. And Sir Pound said, what do you do with the stalks? They said, they chew them. And then he said, you don't want to know, man, it's brutal. You know, there's a little couple of wheat berries left on the stalk, we use those. Lots of porridge, man, it's... It's uh, poor bread porridge, we call it, and it's terrible stuff. And, uh, you know, just get out of here. Because, uh, you know, they had never made a cat work before, but you look so healthy and brave. They might just put you to work. And Sir Pound said, I don't like this one bit, man. So you just do work all day. What do you get in return for bread porridge? And they said, "It's uh, you know, you're born into this work, man. You know, that's how it works. You're born... You know, if you don't got a job they kick you out of here. And then you don't even get any wheat berries or wheat stalks, so get used to it. What's up, Out said, listen, man, I've been walking and napping and be honest I eat some of that wheat and it's uh probably needs to be I can't cats don't eat wheat for a good reason. But uh, you know, my uh I'm looking for some companionship, some other cats to talk to, have long conversations with after my nap. Uh, I was dreaming of this cat, and she was the color of wheat, uh, you know, golden and lovely, like when, before I saw you people working, it made me depressed, and the wheat was just by itself, like amber waves of grain, man, you know what I'm saying, and the guy said, oh, I know what you're saying, that's like the uh, royal cat, 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 and uh, they, Pounce said, well, where do I find it? They said, high garden, in the high garden. But sometimes she uh, comes down and she likes to uh, blend in with the wheat and scare some kids, you know, jump out at them, so maybe he'll find her. And just then, so Pounce saw out of the corner of his eye an amber wave of beauty. And he uh, chased it in and... And he just tackled Katerina. And he said, hey, why don't you pick out somebody slightly a different size than you, but almost. And she said, what are you doing? And he said, I'm Sir Pounce. Pleased to meet you. She said, I'm Katerina. I'm busy. I'm here to, you know, mess with some threshers. You want to join me? And Sir Pounce said, "I I choose not to. Because I just can't keep my eyes off of that fur of yours. It's like makes this wheat look disgusting. And she said, well, that's the foundation of our whole kingdom here. He said, yeah, I would throw out your entire kingdom for, uh, you know, just put my head on that fur of yours and take a little nap. What do you say? And she said, "Uh, you know, normally I'd reject you on principle alone, but there's something about you, some subconscious level of confidence and bravery. That's just mesmerizing. Plus, I like the way you complimented my fur. So, yeah, let's, uh... She said, I'll be back. I'm going to scare some kids. That gets me in the mood for, uh, uh, you know... And that's I said, for mood? For what, Sir Pounce? And he said, don't worry about it, man. And then he said, me and her tumbled around, and we were covered in wheat berries. And uh then I picked all the wheat berries out of her hair, plucked a few more whiskers, and then, Tom and now, I know you're part of the, you know, ruling class, Tom. But I took out my fur was so full of wheat berries. I went back to the man I met, and I shook him out. And his family ate wheat berries for, like, two and a half weeks. And then the stomachs, you know, then it was not great because they were used to eating that. But anyway, Tom, and that's how I got that whisker. And that's when I tried to do something good, but it probably wasn't, you know, whatever, Tom. And so that is a tale. Of the Amber Waves of Love. And I said, what do you mean, Sir Pounce? I thought you were just plucking whiskers. And he said, oh boy, you really don't buy any more scepters, my friend. And then my stomach hurt so, because I had, uh, you know, had not had dinner. So I cried some more, and then I fell asleep. And that is the tale of Sir Pounce and the Amber Waves of Love. Thank you for listening to Tommen, and the greatest cat who's ever lived, Sir Pounce. Good night. Okay, it's time for my prayers to the gods, old gods and new. Hey Crone, sweet, sweet crone, uh lovely crone. Holy moly crone uh jester, Miller, Smith, Barky. It's me clocking in on the uh you know, old God and new gods express. And I'll be honest with you guys, I want to make it quick, I want to make it short, I want to make it sweet. Sweet is the dew of my kiss on the maiden's lips, you know, when, that I dream about. Um You know, I don't know if you guys were watching uh, the whole thing with the There's this red woman. I know it's there's some people that, have, you know, it's the second season, but we're at the fourth season, but whatever, we're starting new. So she's got something going with the night's dark and full of stuff. And uh, she seems like troublemaker gods, this whole new god. She was burning effigies of gods. Now I did not watch it in slow motion crone. But I saw something that looked like the mother and the father and the warrior. I don't know if I saw any crones in there. So uh, I don't know. I hope you guys are okay. That's one. That's main reason um, checking in just to make sure you guys are okay. So, um, you're God. So I assume FGS would just like, uh, insult you. Uh, so that's, that's one prayer. One, uh, just prayer of, uh, check in prayer, I guess. Prayer number two is, um, we got a second season that just started up. We got this red woman and her religion, we, you know, we got other religions we haven't covered. We got the whole, you know, the gods we're sick of anyway. You know, we recruited Barkey, we recruited the Jester. I made up the Miller and the S- Smith. You were your original god, or did I make you up too? I don't know, but you're the my gods. and um, um, you know, not a god, but a person that I hold in very high esteem is George R. R. Martin. And I know last season I almost totally messed up the whole Game of Thrones universe and he didn't find out about it that I know about gods. But then I was thinking about season four and stuff that had nothing to do with season four that I got accidentally set loose in his universe with um, Cat Stevens and Aristotle and the made-up guy pretending to be the hound who's not the hound. So I figured maybe I should kick off a quest to find those guys and bring them in and uh, somehow use that to glorify your name, show you honor, uh, and, you know, maybe tie in this, um, whatever the Lord of light, they call it. Uh, uh you know, you sure it sounds good. The Lord of light. How can that sound bad? Uh, except when you're burning effigies of gods, that's one that's pretty, um, egotistical, I'd say, you know, I'm not, I insult, maybe I burn got other gods, I'm, you know, father and the warrior and the mother with my words, but uh, it's not like I'm out in the backyard, well, that one time, but I didn't actually have, like, life-size uh, replicas that I was, you know, so that's, so, so that's what I got going, is um, potentially, if you guys don't like it, uh, again, I don't know if this is like some reboot situation. Like she burns effigies of you. Like they call it spawning, I think, in video games. You guys got to respawn or something? I don't know. So, But, but what I think is I'm going to set things right. I'm going to put this world back in balance. I mean, I'd like to go after the Red Woman and Laura That's George R. R. Martin's business. So I'm going to track down Aristotle and Cat Stevens. They have a fantasy machine, fiction... Um, Kind of like a time machine, a metaverse machine, more or less. They can travel the fictions and the fantasies and um, mess it up. And again, they could be working on some sort of super, like they could be like unmasons, undoing the masonry that the mason, the original OG mason of Westeros, George R. R. Martin, you know, built up stone by stone, story piece by story piece. So I gotta, I feel bad, you know, I can't mess his. You you know, how would you feel, gods, if you were, you know, set up this whole religion and then somebody came? Oh, yeah, I already knew that's why I left the first time. I guess I I don't have a great sense of irony. Um, But I figure, like, you gods, you don't care about me messing up your religions because you weren't getting the respect you deserved. So, like, a new religion that I started— it's just between me and you, guys. You know what? What? There's no way to be, but, you know, putting you guys above the maiden, and the father and the mother and the warrior. You know, I was sick of them acting like you were equals when they, we all knew. They thought they were better, and they're at the beginning of the th- prayers, and of course they talked to the crone like she's some you know baddie, and they weren't joking like I do, like a friendly. Like friend jokes, making fun of you like friend would. They're making fun of you like jerks do. So that's what I'm praying in God's about. One, are you okay? Uh, one B, Barky, where are the DVDs and the books they gave you? Uh, Cause I, you know, really make me look bad, and fines are adding up. I'm. Uh, uh, oh, barky, come on. And, uh, you know, I gotta get him back before Jar Jar. That's another thing. George R. R. Martin does not need to know about that. I'm putting, you know, giving you technology to share with the other trees for entertainment purposes. And, you know, that Groot, dancing Groot, I gave you, you know, I'm I, I I'll, I'll let you keep that if you give me everything else back, okay um again, the beginning of this episode, God's, it kind of was like a little bit out of shape. I still am you know, I'm not as I said many a time, I'm not praying for me uh because that didn't work. I mean, if it worked, I would still be praying for me, but uh, you know, I didn't get those boots. My goats got stolen. Uh, you know, I ended up with those old people. I thought that was going to work. That didn't work. I got made fun of at the brothels. So praying for me just doesn't work. And uh, so, you know, I tried doing the opposite. That didn't work either. I guess. So now I'm just trying to fix the mess I made. I guess that's my thing. And and just talk to you guys, and make sure you're okay. So. But yeah, oh, the whole thing I was mad about is, you know, my listeners, gods, come on, look out for them at least, please. You know, don't then we'd have to listen to me. You could you could make deals with them on the side and say, hey, we'll make sure your apartment's safe. Just don't listen to that nut job because we really. I don't know. Maybe you're some sort of. Maybe you got an ungod complex, gods, and you just want to be subservient to gods, the maiden, and um father and mother and warrior, mostly of those three are on my, you know, list. maiden, you know, uh, yeah, I'd like to kiss the dew on her lips, whatever I said it before, I'll say it again. So it's God's, I mean, I don't know. I mean, that's, I, I don't know. I guess like uh, that's my main thing is I'm going to find Cat Stevens and Aristotle and take, I probably can't take them out because I like Cat Stevens' music. I don't know what happened to him in this universe, that he went crazy. And Aristotle, I'm just out. That's self-defense. He said he was going to get me or something. I don't even know what I did to him. But I just want to get him out of this universe, you know, get him back to wherever. Maybe that was when uh, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, I think they might, that was Socrates, I thought, but maybe Aristotle, they pulled him out. But I'll get it handled. Don't worry, God's. And that's it. Um, thank you for you know, watching over me. I know I hold a totally bared my soul type situation. That was hard, but it worked out fine. Uh, maiden, I don't know if you listen to that episode, but you know, I'm pretty vulnerable in there. And um, you know, some people find it a reason for pity, but some you know, you know, Maiden I got a soft side, a t- you know, mostly it's an angry hard side. Tough as tough as nails, maiden. But you know you could listen to that. You know vulnerability. They say it's attractive. Honesty with a little humor, maiden. I know you like me. Just let's forget it. Let's let's quit this. Uh, you know messing around and start some real messing around. All right. I'm serious right, this time. Cause I know let's just be. Let's put it all out there, and um, lie blanket down under the stars. And uh, we, we go from there, you know, whatever. We'll talk if you need it, you know. But, Maiden, just, just you know, whatever. And plus, once you listen to that episode, because uh, Barky had an iPod, Maiden, and you're a goddess, too, so maybe you could track it down. And you can help me with those DVDs, because if we're going to be together, you don't want me to have to deal with my library fines, And then I have to use your library card. Though you probably got some really good library privileges since you're a goddess, So that's it, guys. Um, Crone, sweet Crone, thanks for um, not watching uh the apartments of my listeners that get broken into. But you know, make sure you sell some books for the listeners that make books, and for listeners that dream dreams, you know, don't don't dash them. Rest you too. That goes for all right. So this is me a little um, chastising tonight, so forgive me, but I'm always in praise. And, you know, I'm just you're a little lowly servant here. Um, I'm going to fix things that I messed up. And, probably, you know, you guys know Jester, that I'll probably make you more bigger mess by trying to fix it. But uh, that's for you gods to, you know, be entertained by my humanness or attracted to M-A-I-D-E-N or however you spell it. Alright, good night, guys. I'm out of here. I'll talk to you soon. And you're know, made sooner. Okay. Because I'm seriously made a little lonely. Alright, guys, good night.